This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com. Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. Starting a new letter, letter number 28, page 186. It's a follow-up, it's, a, it's a, a, theme, a similar theme to the letter that we finished last week. The difference between that letter and this letter, the previous letter is consoling the Hasidim for the loss of a Rebbe, the leader of the generation, the Rebbe. The mentor, the father figure, the general soul, the, the leader, the Rebbe of the generation. In this letter, he's consoling his colleague is Mechutin, Rabbi Levi Yitzchak for the loss, the tragic loss of his son. Parents should never bury their children. And he's consoling him for the tragic loss of the tzaddik, Rabbi Meir, the son of Rabbi Levi Yitzchak So he's talking about an individual who passed away, a saintly individual who passed away young, before his time. And uh, the Alter Rebbe is trying to console, to find words of comfort for this loss. You know, people go into shiva houses and they don't know what to say. Some say very foolish things. I think they're being helpful. Well, at least they live a good life. <laughs> you know, they, whatever. We should, never, we should never have to be in that position to be consoled. But people <laughs> need to be consoled. Who say that sometimes the foolishness is beyond belief. You know, you just... Empathize. You're not known as looking for, for your wisdom. Just be there for them and just empathize with their loss. But um, here the Alter Rebbe is trying to soothe and to console the soul of his friend, his colleague, his partner, his, 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 his a fellow chassid of the Magid. I believe it's the holy I believe it's trying to find words that will really, truly console him for this unbelievable loss. And this is chapter, two, this is letter number 28, which is Koyach. Because you need strength. After a loss, such a loss, it's like a, a punch in the, in the solar plexus. So you need a, a Koyach, you need strength to uh, come to yourself. So the Alter Rebbe is, this is the letter of consolation that Alter Rebbe wrote. It's a very fundamental letter, very profound, powerful letter, which explains the whole idea of passing and the effect that it has on us here, those who remain. This letter was written by the Alter Rebbe to his relative by marriage, the famous rabbi and the godly man, the holy man of Hashem, lamp of Israel, pillar of the right, mighty hammer. These are expressions taken from the Talmud, uh, used by the sages when describing someone of tremendous scholarship. Our master, our Levi Yitzhak, made his soul rest in Aden head of the rabbinical court of the holy community of Berditship, to console him on the passing of his son, the pious rabbi R. Mayer. May his soul rest in Eden. So this was a few years before the passing, like uh, seven years before the passing of Alter Rebbe. Um, so this is like an introduction that the, the uh, explaining what this letter is about, that this letter is a letter written by the Alter Rebbe. In the in the Tanya itself, the children took out the openings of the letter and the closing of the letter. They just put the body of the letter. 
you know, because every letter that we read, many of them have introductions, long introductions, long uh, at the end of the letter, practical applications. Like we said, 13 of the th 32 letters deal directly with the theme of tzedakah. On the other hand, the majority of the letters deal with tzedakah, because even the letters that don't deal with tzedakah, if you read the entire letter, the beginning, and the end of the letter, which was omitted, the whole letter ultimately was leading up to the call for action. Now, as a result, we want you to give more tzedakah. But that was taken out because that's just a call for action. They only left the body of a letter which has the content, the innovation, the novelty, the new light, the new interpretation, and shed light, and new understanding, new insight. So that's what that was incorporated in the letters. So the children took out, they took out the whole introduction. So they're just writing here that this letter, you should know what this letter is about. Who is this letter to? Because it goes right to the, in the middle of the letter. But this was a letter that the Alter Rebbe wrote to console his mechutten, I believe, Yitzhak Abarditchev, who had already passed away. I mean, at the, when this letter was published, he had already passed away. This happened in the year 1806. Alter Rebbe passed away in uh, 1813 and um, seven years later and then the children published this part of the Tanya. This part of the Tanya was published after the passing of the Alter Rebbe. So by the time this was published, I believe Yitzhak Baditchev had already passed away. But in 1806, Alter Rebbe was writing this letter to his very live Mechutten and was trying to console him for the tragic loss of his son who passed away at an early age. And so now we get to the body of the letter. Why is the passage concerning the passing of Miriam adjoined to the passage concerning the red heifer? This is what the Talmud, the Talmud uh, asks. To teach you that just as the heifer affects the atonement, so too does the passing of the righteous. Commenting on this quotation from Gemara, from Safford, explain that the red heifer atones for the sin of the golden calf. And in the same way, the passing of the righteous affects atonement. The Talmud explains, you know, juxtaposition in Torah is also Torah, also teaches us a lesson. Nothing is random. In general, especially in the Torah, everything is precise. So what's the juxtaposition right after the mitzvah of the red heifer in the book of, uh, of Numbers? Then the Torah tells us that Miriam passed away. So the rabbis say, it comes to teach us that the two are connected that just like the red heifer achieves an atonement, so too the passing of a tzaddik also achieves atonement. Now, the question you may ask is, what does the red heifer have to do with atonement? Red heifer is for purification purposes. If a person came in contact with death and he became impure, and that's the ultimate source of impurity, come in contact with death. So with the procedure of the red heifer, by taking the ashes and sprinkling the water, you, uh, the ashes of the red heifer together with the spring water and with the, with the other items, elements, the person by sprinkling it, you know, the counting seven days and sprinkling on the third day and the seventh day, you achieve a purification. So what does it have to do with atonement? Talmud says that just like the red heifer atones, so too the passing of a tzaddik achieves atonement. So that's what he quotes. Tesis explains that the red heifer was an atonement. It was an atonement for the sin of the golden calf. Because it says if, this golden, if, the, if the Jewish people would not sin with a golden calf, at Mount Sinai the Jewish people became free of death. They were freed from death. For a brief moment, they went back to the world, went back to the Garden of Eden. The world was perfect. God came down the mountain. Heaven came down to earth. In a perfect merger between heaven and earth. This is the ultimate goal, the ultimate purpose. Just like it was when God created the world. The world was perfect. God was present. The world was a Garden of Eden. So for a brief moment, they were, sin of, of, they were free of sin. They were free of death. They were free of illness. Everyone was healed at Mount Sinai. And that would have remained that way. But as a result of the sin of the golden calf, they reverted back. It was like the original sin that plunged the world into 
darkness and plunged the world into, into uh, sin and brought death into the world as a result, as a consequence, and, and evil and pain and suffering and hardship, so too, if the Jewish people would not have sinned with the golden calf, Mashiach would have come. They would have marched straight into the land of Israel, and that would have been the ultimate redemption with Moses. They would have built the first and last temple, and that would have been it. But as a result of the sin of the golden calf, they reverted back. And once again, they reintroduced sin into the world and death and uh, illness. And that's why you have the impurity. That's why you have impurity. That's why you have death and impurity. If not for the sin of the golden calf, there would no longer be any impurity. All you would, all you would have is purity, life, joy, goodness. Absolute goodness, absolute purity, absolute life, and absolute joy. So as a result, therefore, we have the, uh, the red heifer. So the red heifer is an atonement for the impurity of death and the source and the ultimate reason for that. It's an atonement for what brought that about. What brought that about was the sin of the golden calf. So they didn't need an atonement. Not only a purification, they, not only did they need a purification, but they also needed an atonement for, for being here in the first place, for being in this position in the first place. Why should you even be in a position to be impure? How is it even possible to be impure? It's a result of our sin, of the golden calf, our choice, poor choices that we made. So we need an atonement. And so not only do we need a purification, we also need an atonement, and the red heifer was an atonement. That's how Taisus explains the meaning of the Gemara. That it's an atonement, and therefore, just like the red heifer atones for the sin of the golden calf, so too, the passing of the tzaddik also achieves an atonement. Not a purification, an atonement. So when the Rebbe passed, there's an atonement for the Jewish people? That's, that's what the Talmud says. Talmud says, when a tzaddik passes away, it's an atonement. Yes, his passing, just like the red heifer is an atonement, the passing of a tzaddik affects an atonement. You know, we say in the 13 uh, principles by which we derive the whole oral Torah is based on, which we say in the davening every morning, Rabbi Shmuel Eimer. So one of, the, one of them is, that if something was included, a, Torah makes a general statement. Everything was a general statement. And then and then the Torah specifies one detail, isolates one detail and teaches us something about that detail. So from that, the detail we learn for the rest of the whole, for the, for the general as well. The Torah spells out in one detail, but it comes to teach us not only in that specific detail, but since it was part of the general generalization. And then the Torah spells out a detail and teaches us a certain law regarding this detail. This law doesn't only apply to this detail, this law applies to the whole general category. So a great Hasidic Rebbe once said, when a great tzaddik passed away, he says, kol a Jew, whose whole life was part of the Jewish people, and part of the Jewish people. Yatsum and Akal. And Hashem took, removed them from the Kali throne, removed them from the Jewish people. He passed away, he took his soul away. He didn't come to teach him for himself, he didn't come just to achieve an atonement for himself. It's an atonement for the whole Jewish people, for Kali throne. Sometimes Hashem saves the Jewish people by, uh, by the passing of a tzaddik. He saves the Jewish people from a catastrophe or from a, uh, you know, from a, pot- a potential tragedy. Um, the rabbis say, Chazal say, that just like we have an altar in this world, we also have an altar in the heavens. And the angel Michal is the great Kohen. 
And who is he sacrificing on that altar? There's no animals in heaven. There's no goats, and there's no sheep, and there's no calves, there's no bulls. Who is he sacrificing? The souls of the tzaddik. These are the sacrifices. When the soul of a tzaddik passes away, this is a sacrifice, an atonement for the Jewish people. That's what he says. That's what the rabbis are saying. A dross like the red heifer is an atonement. So to the passing of a tzaddik is an atonement. But the question is, how the rabbi is going to pose to teach us this lesson that the passing of a tzaddik is an atonement. Why do you have to learn this out from Paradum, from the red heifer? And you have to scratch your head and wonder what does red heifer have to do with atonement? Red heifer is primarily for purification. And you have to give a whole explanation that's because the root cause of impurity, of death, came about because of, this, uh, because of the, the sin of the golden calf. As therefore, it was also not only did it achieve a purification, it also achieved an atonement. Why didn't the Torah just juxtapose it to the, uh, to the sacrifices? We have a whole book in Leviticus about sacrifices. The whole Torah is about sacrifices. The majority of mitzvahs, so many mitzvahs, have to do with sacrifices. So why don't you juxtapose it with a sacrifice? Which makes sense in keeping with the rabbis say elsewhere that the, there is an altar in heaven and, who is, and what are the sacrifices that are offered on the altar in heaven? The souls of the tzaddik. And that's an, an atonement for the generation that's left behind. That would make sense. It's a sacrifice. So bring a juxtaposition from sacrifices. Why are you bringing a juxtaposition from the red heifer? Seems so far-fetched. Red heifer is, is not a... It's primarily a purification. For purification purpose. That's the question that the Rebbe is now going to pose. Now it needs to be understood why the passage concerning the passing of Miriam was adjoined specifically to the passage concerning the red heifer, which was prepared outside the three camps, and as such was not a sacrifice proper, except that the Torah calls it a sin offering. So we do find the Torah calls a chattasi. The Torah does say it's a sin offering. Because in a certain sense it is an atonement. Like he explained earlier, it's an atonement for the sin of the golden calf. But, but it's really, it's, it's not the primary, primarily it's a purification. It's, 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 a, it's a purification process. It's not a sacrifice. Wouldn't it make more sense, continue? And it was not enjoined to the passage concerning the sin offering that was prepared within on the altar and as such affects actual atonement. Alternatively, the Hebrew text could be understood to mean on the actual altar of atonement, or preferably, that the sin offering was actual atonement, unlike the red heifer, which was primarily a rite of purification. To revert to the question concerning the juxtaposition of the two passages, the Alter Rebbe explains that an offering connoted an arousal from below, from the soul of the animal that derived from Klippa Nova. This, in turn, elicited a reciprocal arousal from above drawing down a finite order of divine light that can permeate the finite world and be integrated and ingested within it. This characteristic explains why offerings are referred to as the food of the altar. Being finite, this con contracted order of divine light was only able to effect atonement of unwitting sins, those that derive from undue domination by the animal soul, which derives from klipanoga. The red heifer, by contrast, produces the sanctifying purification waters, Kiddush Nehatat, and it draws down an illumination from the most supremely sanctified levels of divinity, Kodesh HaElyon, that utterly transcend this world. This intense illumination can transform the darkness of Toho into the light of Tikkun and secure purification for even the harshest degree of impurity, Aviyavot Hatshuma, which is far lower than the Klipat Noga. In the same way, the passing of a tzaddik draws down a divine illumination that transcends the world, deriving as it does from the element within the 13 attributes of mercy, which is called the tikkun of Nota. The name of this tikkun, which comprises the same letters as Ratzon, brings about an Ebratzon, an auspicious time, and secures atonement for the sins of the generation, even those that are committed willfully and that derive from the three completely impure klipos. In this regard, the passing of a tzaddik is thus more akin to the red heifer than to a sin offering. You know, God is interactive, so Hashem responds to us. Whatever is going on within us, 
It says Hashem is Hashem Tzilcha. God is, King David says, God is our shadow. As the Baal Shem Tu says, whatever we do, God like shadows us. Um, or the Magid says, Mimcha. It says in Ethics of Our Fathers, chapter 2, you should know what's a literal meaning. You should know what's above you. There's an eye that sees what he said. Deeper meaning is whatever happens above comes from you. We are in the driver's seat. God is interacting. So sacrifice plays a very central role in Judaism. When we offer a sacrifice, it's, it's pleasing to God. God responds. Reach nichoyach very pleasing to God. God is responding to our sacrifice. When we make our sacrifice to Hashem, when we are offering up the animal, we're in a spiritual sense. We're making our own personal sacrifices, our daily sacrifices, inconveniencing ourselves, doing something that's a little difficult, doing something that's a little unnatural for us to do, goes against our grain, against our nature, pushing the envelope, going the extra mile, exerting ourselves, restraining ourselves. Those sacrifices are very precious to Hashem. Hashem responds in kind. And that's why a sacrifice is offered on the altar. We burn the sacrifice. We're offering ourselves, we're sacrificing, we're giving something up. When you burn, something has to give. You have to sacrifice. The physical has to sacrifice to unleash the energy from within. If the wick will remain a wick, there's no energy. You can't release the energy. There's no sacrifice. There's no, no deposit, no return. If, the, if you don't, nothing gives, then there's no response. So something has to give. So it's the sacrifice that initiates the whole process. We... From the bottom up, we, the fire goes up. We draw ourselves closer to Hashem. We sacrifice our ego, our ego nature, our animal selves, our banal selves, and we offer ourselves up to Hashem. We climb up and Hashem responds. Hashem responds. And He receives the offering. And that's what happens with every sacrifice. But that's, but that's limited. It's nothing earth-shattering. It's, uh, it's a sacrifice. We inconvenience ourselves. One of many daily sacrifices that we have to make. We don't always do what we want to do, what we like to do, what we prefer to do. We do what we have to do. Even if we're not in the mood. It's the right thing, so we do it. We're disciplined. We hope. That's sacrifice. Do this on a daily basis. You know? In business, people do it all the time. The customer is always right. You're ready to hang the customer. <laughs> You're ready to choke them. <laughs> keep on smiling. You know? You do what's right. A little discipline. You don't do what you feel like doing. So these, this, this is a daily thing. It's something that you do. It's something, it's a discipline. It's a presence of mind. It's a conscious decision that you make. It's deliberate. And Hashem responds. Hashem responds. But the sacrifice is limited. And the response is limited. And that's why a sacrifice could only atone for unintentional sins. Why does an unintentional sin even need us an atonement? It was unintentional. You bring a sacrifice for unintentional sins. With the rare exception, all sacrifices are for unintentional sins. Why would you need an atonement? It was unintentional. It's clearly a mistake. It was unintentional. I didn't know. I didn't forget. Well, unintentional doesn't need an atonement. Because there's certain things you don't do even unintentionally. 
What was last, when was the last time you rolled, rolled off your bed at night? Unintentionally. Doesn't happen. Even when you're asleep. You ever notice a drunk person? He's out of control and he's wild. Harming everyone around him. But you know, when he goes down the steps, he has enough presence of mind to hold on to the, hold on to the rail. He doesn't tumble down the steps. He's crazy, but not that crazy. Even an animal, when you see an animal, an animal d- doesn't jump into fire. There's certain things you don't do, even if you're an animal. Even if you're a bull in a china shop, certain things you don't do, you don't harm yourself. So if sin, if it's so clear to you that sin is like fire, jumping into fire, even unintentionally, how could you sin? It's not an excuse. But it was unintentional, it was a mistake. Even by mistake, you don't jump into fire. You don't fall off your bed. So what, what, what kind of excuse is that? It was unintentional. It was a mistake. That's why a person is obligated for all, all damages, even unintentional. It's not an excuse. I was a victim. In Jewish law, that doesn't hold any water. No excuses. It was, a, it was yes, you're right, but... Is it was a result of something very wrong inside of you. Because if you were in the right place where you should be, it can never happen. So when a person does a sin unintentionally, it's like a giveaway. It's like a slip of, a slip of the tongue. Freudian slip. Which is more revealing than anything that you say or do deliberately or consciously. Because it just shows us where you're at subconsciously. Where your soul is at, where your mind is at. Maybe the whole thing, you're just going through the motions, but your heart is not into it, your soul is not into it, you're just not there. And subconsciously, you're not there. And the, and the proof is, because look, look at the slip of the tongue. How could you say this? How could you do this? But it was a mistake. But if that mistake is more revealing to you what's really going on inside of you than the facade, this deliberate conscious facade that we put up. So you need an atonement. And Arizal says, if a person is careful on Pesach to stay away from even a crumb, a drop of chametz. He's so careful about Pesach. He's guaranteed that he won't sin the whole year. Now what does that mean? He's guaranteed he won't sin the whole year. God will yank away our freedom of choice. We always have freedom of choice. Well, what does that mean? Doesn't, he's not talking about, of course he has freedom of choice. A person always has freedom of choice. A person could choose to commit suicide. I mean, even though it goes against our nature, it goes against our whole being, our whole essence, you can choose to do anything. But what the Arizal means that you won't sin unintentionally. Because if for, for seven days and outside of Israel, for eight days, he was so careful, even a drop of chametz, starting with Erev Pesach, then that means that your essence, your core, your essence is holiness. That means you really care, you're really into, you're absorbed with holiness and godliness. So if your whole core and center is holiness and godliness and Torah and Yiddishkeit and Hashem, then there's no way you're going to sin unintentionally. Because when you sin unintentionally, it just reveals where you're at. Maybe in your facade, deliberately and consciously, you'll never sin. God forbid. But if you're able to do it unintentionally, and maybe in a way you're happy. Wow, I got to do the sin, but I, I'm not even, I can't even blame me. I got the best of both worlds. <laughs> then it means you're not really into it. And that's why it's possible for you to sin unintentionally. But if you were truly internally horrified that you're so careful that even a crumb of chametz horrifies you and you're so careful, that means that this is what you're really into it. You're, you're deep into it. You're really internally absorbed in holiness and godliness. If you're so connected and so, so alive inside of you, there's no way, even with your eyes closed, even when you're asleep, even when unintentionally you're jumping into fire. Sin, it's not even possible. You run away from it. It's not a question of obligation, not obligation. It's, it's much deeper than that. And it says Hashem protects the tzaddik. It says Hashem, there's a special protection for the tzaddik that he wouldn't, he wouldn't sin. 
Pesach says this is specifically about food items, that you won't come to eat something that's not kosher. This is special protection. Um, Hashem will make a miracle even if he has to, to protect the tzaddik from eating something that's not okay. Now we understand why you need an atonement. The atonement of a sacrifice could only atone for an unintentional sin. So when a person sacrifices, and a person shows remorse, and he sacrifices, when you offer a sacrifice, it's not just a sacrifice. You also have to, it has to be accompanied by remorse. So if a person sins, and he's remorseful, and he makes a sacrifice, and he steps up, and steps up and, and takes responsibility for what he did. He's not avoiding. He understands that what he did was wrong. And he understands that it's his fault. And he takes personal responsibility. And he expresses remorse. He says, Vidu. And he offers a sacrifice. His heart is broken and he's sacrificing. Then Hashem responds. And his sin is washed away. Because he's addressed the root cause of the sin. And Hashem responds. But this cannot atone for an intentional sin. If a person is ready to sin intentionally, cold-bloodedly, cynically, without any regrets or remorse, without any fear, without any... Then he's like... Dr. Rebbe says when a person sins, it's like his head is chopped off. No one has yet figured out how to reattach a head. I know there's a doctor now who's claiming that he's preparing to make the first head transplant in human history. We'll see how that goes. But it means you're already chopped off your head. You, you don't care. You care so little about godliness, about your relationship with Hashem. It means so little to you. And you're ready to cold-bloodedly, deliberately, consciously, knowingly sin, and you couldn't care less. God says, don't do this, and I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm going to do it anyway. That means you're already so disconnected. A sacrifice can't atone for that. A sacrifice can't fix that. What's a limited sacrifice going to do? Your whole head has been chopped off, has been severed. What, what's a sacrifice going to do? Sacrifice could only help if you sin unintentionally. So it could reconnect you, it could reorient you, refocus you, recenter you. And Hashem responds, and you restore that relationship. But if your head is chopped off, severed, disconnected, Sacrifice is woefully inadequate to achieve anything. So how do you achieve atonement? How do you restore that relationship? How do you reconnect? That's what the, what's the red heifer? The red heifer was for someone who came in contact with death, which symbolizes if you're spiritually dead, the ultimate source of impurity. If you're spiritually dead, there's no life. You're like a corpse. You're spiritually so disconnected. Hashem means so little to you. Godliness means nothing to you. That you're ready to dispassionately and cold-bloodedly just, I couldn't care less, so I'm doing something wrong. So I'm going against Hashem's wish. Going against the code of Jewish law. What do I care? I'm having fun. I'm enjoying myself. It means you're disconnected. You're dead. You're spiritually dead. Your head is severed. Your head is chopped off. You're gone. How do you restore that connection? How do you get back that connection? And for this, you need to go something, you need to go a lot deeper. You know, it has to be a, a level of sacrifice, of self-sacrifice that comes from your very being.
It's very personal. It's very real. Not your surface self, your conscious self. It has to come from your subconscious self, from your core, from your essence. It has to be such a dedication and devotion to Hashem, such a connection to Hashem, that touches the totality of your being, the essence of your being. Because the sin touched the whole essence of your being. You're totally severed, disconnected, you're dead. You're dead to godliness. It means absolutely nothing to you. No reaction, you couldn't care less, you're indifferent. So to restore that relationship, to activate that relationship again, it has to come from the depth of your being, from your very core, your very essence, from your genuineness, from your truth. Is that like when you hit rock bottom? I mean, really rock bottom is when you decide there's nowhere else but to come back and come up. Is that when you realize all that I've done, I'm at the bottom of the barrel now and I want to come back? Is that like almost like that? Yeah, the Talmud says of Lazar ben Derdaya. Lazar ben Derdaya was a playboy and there wasn't a single prostitute in the world that he hadn't, he didn't visit and experience and uh, once one of the prostitutes like insulted him and he got very insulted he took it to heart and he decided to do teshuva and he ran to the mountains and he says mountains please pray for me and the mountain says enough we pray for ourselves and he turned to the wind and everywhere he turned he said I'm sorry we can't help you and he realized no one in the universe could help him he stopped relying on this or on that or on the other to save him. He put his he- head between his legs and he cried until his soul passed away and became one with God. And Rebbe cried and said a person could acquire his share in the world to come in one moment. By that genuine, in other words, he was cried. It took him, he took it so to heart. It was so genuine and so real that he literally expired. It shook him to his core. So sometimes when you reach Ragbadim, then you, uh, you're no longer acting. You're no longer, you're not dealing anymore with superficial. We can go through our entire lives and our whole persona is just completely superficial. We never really go a little deeper. We never really touch our very essence. We never even go there. We never even come close. When a person hits rock bottom and you strip away all the, uh, all the props and there's nothing left, all you're left is the raw core you, and you have to realize, you know, and it shakes you to your core. When you give one shake to your core, then Hashem responds in kind. You know, if a chicken rolls in the dirt, you're going to start cleaning the feathers. It can take you a few years until you get every every dust, bit of dust out of the... But the chicken gives itself one shake, and in one second it's all gone. When a person really shakes himself, gives himself a real shuckle, a real internal shuckle, a real shake that comes from the depth of your being and the core and essence of who you, are you, who you are, you're not acting, you're not... nothing artificial, there's nothing surface. It's like as genuine as it gets. It's pure, it's real. Then Hashem responds in kind as well. Because just like we have a conscious self, Hashem, so to speak, also has a conscious self. It's called in the, in the Adam and the, in the prophets, the vision of the chariot, the Adam Shalakise, the person sitting on the throne, on the godly throne, which is an imagery of, uh, of Hashem. We're created in God's image, so it's referring to Hashem. But this is the way Hashem, the world of divine, world of emanation, the ten svirot, this is like God's personality. It's like our God's conscious self. So our conscious self interfaces with God's conscious self. So we make a sacrifice, God responds. Whatever we do, God responds. But it's our surface responding, God's surface, so to speak, responding to our surface self. But then there comes a moment when the surface just melts away and it all falls by the wayside. and all You strip away that surface and you're left with that pure 
unself-conscious self, the real you, in all its, in all its reality. And when there's a movement from there, from that place, then Hashem responds from His unselfconscious, from His core, from His essence. And when Hashem responds from His unself, from His core and essence, then anything is possible. Then even if the head has been chopped off and the person couldn't care less about godliness, doesn't respond to godliness, it means nothing to him, tramples on it, all of his life is trampled on it, prohibitions, Torah, violations, God's will, it means absolutely nothing in his world. But at that moment, when your core and essence is shaken to the core, you touch the essence of Hashem, at that moment, your relationship is restored, your soul is restored, your life, your divine life is restored, your connection to godliness is restored. And even if you sin, and it was an intentional sin, you could achieve, receive atonement for that sin. To fix that sin, to connect, to reconnect. And this was the, the, the theme of the red heifer, to purify someone who came in contact with death. What is death? Where does death come from? Death is the absence of life, the absence of God, of Hashem, godliness, total severance. God is life. Anything connected with God is alive. Death is the ultimate absence, disconnect from God. And yet even that person could be reconnected. That is the miracle of the red heifer, the astonishment. Moshe, his face turned red. He says, how, can it possible, how is it possible to reconnect this Jew spiritually dead? How is it possible to reconnect him and to repurify him? And, and that was the mystery of the red heifer. This is the power of the red heifer. Why it's head and shoulders above a regular sacrifice. So much beyond the regular sacrifice, which can only atone achieve atonement for unintentional sins, while the red heifer could achieve atonement even for intentional, for spiritual death, and for the sin of the golden calf, which was intentional. And so too, the passing of a tzaddik. Because when a person gives up his life, it's the, like the ultimate sacrifice. Your ego comes to an end. It's the ultimate handing over your life to Hashem, extinguishing yourself, your ego, extinguishing your physical life, your existence, and delivering yourself totally to Hashem. The moment of death, when you totally concentrate it, is the ultimate sacrifice. Not a detail. And not I'm sacrificing a detail. I'm giving up this detail, I'm giving up that detail. It's the total sacrifice, the total self. This is completely sacrifice. Connecting with Hashem. It's the ultimate mysterious nefesh, literally delivering your soul back to Hashem. The total connection with Hashem. It's not just, the, it's, it's your whole being. That's a very powerful moment. The moment of delivery, the moment of delivering your soul and delivering, giving up your ego and giving yourself to Hashem. That's a powerful, powerful moment. The most powerful moment. More powerful than birth. Birth is a miracle of creation. But the giving your soul over to Hashem, that moment, that connection, it's, 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 it's fireworks. It's, 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 it's the, the implication and the results of that moment, the impact of that moment is so powerful, the whole universe reverberates. It says there's a voice that's heard, that if you were able to hear it, you'd hear from one end of the world to the other. So when the tzaddik passes away, it's such an earth-shattering event 
that it actually reconnects the generation, reconnects and achieves an atonement for the whole generation. For how long? <laughs> Unfor- yeah, un- unfortunately. Unfortunately, till the next tzaddik. He's not talking about a Rebbe passing away. He's, this letter was written to comfort Rabbi Levi Yitzhak for the passing of his son. It was a private individual. And many tzaddikim, the third, 36 hidden tzaddikim of every generation, and many righteous people, saintly people, good people. I'm not talking about Rebbe's now. You know, when the tzaddik passes away, thank God. The rate we're going, we have, I mean, to speak for myself, I have nothing to worry. <laughs> They're not taking us for sacrifices. Once a person, he was always sure he's going to live very long. He says, how could you be so sure you're going to live so long? He says, because I had a promise from the Rebbe that I'm not going to die before I do Teshuvah. And knowing myself and knowing where I'm holding, it's going to take many, many years and decades till I even get close to Teshuvah. So I know I'm guaranteed I'm going to live a long, long life. So we don't have to worry. They're looking for sacrifices in heaven. You know, uh, they're, not, they're not looking. We're not the candidates. So, uh. How can you count on such a thing like that? <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to do true because. Oh no, he was kidding. He was kidding, obviously. But uh, but I'm saying it was like <coughs> saying, he's saying it in jest, that knowing where he's at. The Rebbe told the story that when he turned 60 years old, and he said about himself also, like in half in jest. You know, the, the way. <laughs> um, but. But there, this is a tzaddik, and the tzaddik passes away. It's like a, such a jolt to the system. It's such a, a reaction from above. It's so powerful that it achieves the same result of the red heifer. It achieves a reconnection, a reigniting, a restarting. Everything is realigned. Everything is transformed and changed 180 degrees. One split second. That's how powerful the red heifer is, and that's how powerful the passing of a tzaddik is. And the effect that the passing of a tzaddik has, not only in this world, but we're talking about this world, the lowest part of the world, the part of the world that's so crass and coarse and the antithesis of heaven and anything that's heavenly and godly and good and wholesome. And the tzaddik's passing has such a positive effect, a healing effect on this darkness. The ability to transform that darkness into light. The coarseness and crassness transform it into something God. Transform the person and reconnect them back to Hashem. So the Alter Rebbe is consoling Rebbe Levi with genuine words. Not trying, taking away the pain of what happened, but he's t- explaining that the, the powerful effect that his son's passing had on all those who were left behind. Yes, he was a sacrifice. But Hashem took him as a sacrifice for the benefit and for the sake of all those left behind. To achieve something that the tzaddik cannot achieve when he's alive. Maybe the tzaddik can't reach so low when he's alive. <coughs> because he's limited. As great as he is, he's, a, he's limited. When the tzaddik passes away, there's no limit. It's total sacrifice. It's total egoist. It's total giving up of your existence. Delivering yourself to Hashem. And that moment is so powerful. And Hashem reciprocates and responds from Hashem's, so to speak, core and essence. And when Hashem's core and essence is revealed, Hashem's core and essence is undefined. And you reveal that God is everywhere. There's no, everything is God. And you can transform the darkness into light, the negativity into positive, the sin into mitzvah, the bitterness into sweetness. This is, this is something that's achieved by the passing of the tzaddik. So it's a sacrifice. It's the ultimate sacrifice. If we were worthy, we wouldn't need all these sacrifices. But obviously, uh, <laughs> we are not. Who's ready to make these ultimate sacrifices? Of course, it's always the tzaddik that's ready to make the ultimate sacrifice. He does it so lovingly and selflessly for our sake. Painfully. 
Because the tzaddik would rather live. The Torah says we should live. When the Alter Rebbe was in prison, his prison, we visited his prison two summers ago, and his prison was a, an island, like an, an island, a little island near St. Petersburg, and they would row him to the interrogation, row him from the little island to the interrogation, which was in the city. And when they first took the Alter Rebbe on the boat, Alter Rebbe started crying because he thought that they were, they were going to drown him. They took him out in the middle of the night. You know, no one is around. They drown him. Throw him in the river, and that was it. Started crying. Because the Torah says, we want to live. We don't want to die. According to the Torah, we have to live. We have a reason to live. God wants us to live. He doesn't want us to die. Not everybody started crying. So you think the tzaddik wants to make the sacrifice? The tzaddik would rather live and serve Hashem while he's alive. And that's, that's what the Torah wants us to want. But the tzaddik, when he sees that there's no other way and we're not the way we should be and there's a lot of negativity that has to be dealt with and has to be, you need a recharging and a rejuvenation and a re energizing the tzaddik is even ready to make the ultimate sacrifice out of his love for us and his selflessness he is ready to be that sacrifice to atone for the Jewish people to save the Jewish people and to bring that powerful intense revelation of godliness that could only come about through the passing of the tzaddik today we don't have the red heifer we don't have the temple but we have the tzaddik. And the tzaddik, through his passing, achieves the same powerful effect as the red heifer. So it's painful. It's not what the tzaddik wants. But also to know what's really going on, what, why the tzaddik is doing this, and why Hashem is doing this, and the power of this moment what's achieved through this sacrifice. So it's a powerful thing that's achieved through the sacrifice. Even the building of the tabernacle, the greatest, most intense revelation since Mount Sinai, and since the creation of the world. It also had to come about through a sacrifice of the tzaddik, not of an avil. Their personal sacrifice was a powerful, intense revelation that pave the way for the revelation of Hashem in the tabernacle. It's not by accident that you had this moment at that place, at that time, during the dedication of the tabernacle, because in a way, in a way it's all connected. The passing of a tzaddik is a very powerful moment. It has a powerful impact on us, in this world, in this lowly world. Because the tzaddik is so great, his whole life is great, but the moment of his passing, he's like at his peak. It's like concentrated, his whole being, his whole essence, together, concentrated. And that just sets off fireworks. That just, the effect and the influence and the impact is felt so profoundly and so deeply and completely transforms everything and everyone. So this is how he's trying to console Rabbi Levi Yitzhak Baditcher, with genuine words. It's not minimizing the pain, but the genuine words, what the Torah teaches us, what really happens when the tzaddik passes away. There's more going on than just the tragedy. It is a tragedy. But there's more going on, and Talmud says elsewhere that the Passing of a tzaddik is the equivalent of the destruction of the temple. It's like a destruction. It's a terrible tragedy. But there's more going on than just the tragedy. There's also the powerful effect, positive effect, of the passing of the tzaddik that can only be achieved by that sacrifice. Okay, any questions, comments? Next week we'll learn the letter itself. The, this is just a... Uh, encapsulating, encapsulating the letter.
you know, de death is a very morbid uh, subject. No one likes to talk about it. No one, no one wants. To, hopefully, no one has to deal with it. Um, but Al Rebbe is dealing with it head on. He's not walking away from it. And um, he's not minimizing or negating the pain and the sorrow and the tragedy. But he's talking genuine words. He's telling it the truth. He's telling it what's really going on on a deeper level, which in some way could maybe soothe and comfort us. Because at the same time that you have all this tragedy, you also realize that there's something, something, another dynamic here as well, something much deeper going on. It's not all negative, it's not all... It's something very powerful. Powerful that affects the living, that uh, that's enhances our life. An intense life, an intense uh, level of life which we never had when the tzaddik was alive. So we're advancing, we're going forward, not backwards. None of this is obvious to the naked eye. This is only with the Torah. Torah, when you wear the right glasses, if you're not wearing glasses, you don't see anything. You wear the right glasses, suddenly you see a whole different world. Suddenly the world is color and there's there's nuance and there's color and there's a whole... Why is there such a terrific disconnect between hearing this and learning it and then going back to your everyday life? The best answer is to remove the question. Because <laughs> <laughs> if the question remains, the best answers in the world is not a good answer. You know, if the teacher asks the student, why, why were you late? Whatever answer he's going to give is not a satisfying answer. The bottom line is, you were late. You missed the class. But imagine if the student says, I wasn't late. That's what the teacher wants to hear. The best answer is to remove the question. The whole point of the Tanya is, everything that we're learning is trying to help us that there shouldn't be a disconnect. That's what Alter Rebbe is pointing out. That the whole point of Hasidus and everything that we learn is to try to help us learn that there is no, not that there shouldn't be a disconnect. But in order for there not to be a disconnect, something has to resonate, something has to touch you very deep down. No one could hit you over the head. It does during the class. <laughs> but no one could hit you over the head. Because if you hit you over the head, it'll last for a second and a half. But when something moves you, and something touches you, and something registers inside of you, and you internalize it, and you integrate it, it becomes part of you, then maybe, maybe it'll continue even after the class. Maybe it'll, it'll stay with us and inspire us tomorrow on a Wednesday afternoon when we're alone. It'll light a little fire. Because ultimately that's the only thing that's going to get us to change. If you rely on someone beating us over the head and beating ourselves over the head, that lasts for a minute and a half. How long could you beat yourself over the head? And you get tired and then you just ignore it. But if something moves you inside and something inspires you and ignites something inside of you, then when you're alone and you're private, nobody's looking and no one, no, no one knows what you're thinking, you'll do the right thing, you want to do the right thing because something touched you. This, everything that we learn in Hasidus, every letter, every chapter, is trying to answer that question, to remove the question, that there shouldn't be a disconnect. It should last, maybe the first day will last for a half hour. Maybe the inspiration will last a little longer next time. But every moment of that is, is, is precious. So maybe the answer is we have to learn a little more. <laughs> maybe it'll last a little longer. Maybe once a week is not enough. <laughs> learn a little more. <laughs> it's learning, A. B, reviewing. And not only once, reviewing many times. And the most important thing is taking the time to think about it. That's the most important thing of all. You know, if you take the time to think about it, you know, if a person is hauling a whole truckload of, uh, of vodka, he's not going to get drunk. 
but he's carrying this ton of vodka right behind him. He's sitting in the car, and the vodka's behind him. One is not with the other. But if he takes a little cup, and he drinks it, <laughs> then it's going to affect him. Suddenly he's wobbling, suddenly he's a little... You can have all this information. We're lugging behind us all this powerful information. We learned the first part of the Tanya, the second part of the Tanya, the third part. Thank God we're up to, we're already up almost the end of the fourth part, getting close to the final and fifth part. But if you're just hauling all this information, it has zero effect on us until you take the cup and drink it. What's taking the cup and drinking it? That's thinking about it. After you've learned, and after you've studied it well, and after you've reviewed it a few times, and you know it well, you understand it, now just take time to think about it. Just thinking about it. When you think about it, it's a very powerful thing. It's taking five minutes, ten minutes, on Shabbat in the morning before you pray, take the concept that you learn, and you know, and you reviewed, and you learn many times, and you understand it, and you thought about it, and now just think about it and, and just and then something you know you'll personalize it suddenly it'll inspire something inside of you it's very powerful thinking chassidus not just learning it not just even reviewing it but taking the time the 5, 10, 15 minutes to think about chassidim before they prayed it would take some time just to think chassidus think an idea think it over not learning something new something they already knew and something they already studied and thought about many times but just taking the time to think about it and when you take the time, think about it, it comes alive. It starts affecting you personally. It changes your whole... And then you can start internalizing it, and then it will inspire something inside of you. Something will stir up inside of you. But just learning alone is not enough. It's just the beginning. It's just the launching pad. But then it has to come the thinking about it, chewing on it, and thinking, and just thinking about it, thinking an idea of Hasidus, and then praying with it, and trying to internalize it. And then it comes alive to us. When it comes alive to us, it's more likely to affect us and change us. There's no magic to internalize it. <laughs> there's no magic. There's no shortcuts. The whole Tanya's base, there's no shortcuts. You've got to do the work. You've got to learn, which is work. You yeah, put learning is the athlete. Learning is important. Got to do the time, but it takes time, commitment. You got to come here, you got to learn, and you got to take the time. And it's a commitment. <laughs> and then you got to review, and you want to review a few times, and then, and then you got to sit down and just think. Think over five, ten, fifteen minutes. Think about an idea. Think about it until it comes alive for you. When it comes alive for you, then you can get excited about it. And then you can, you know, it resonates, it evokes some personal response. And then hopefully something will tug at our heart and something will uh, move us, ignite that spark. And then we come alive as Jews. Our learning becomes a little more egolessness and unselfconscious, a little more godly, a little more refined. Our prayer is a little more to the point, a little more refined, our behavior to each other is a little more kind and good, and our mitzvot a little more heartfelt and focused, and our whole life becomes a little more focused. So there are no shortcuts, but this is the long, short way. This is the highway. Al-Tarebi is giving us the tools, but we got to do the work. We got to breathe, we got to do the work, we got to eat for ourselves, we got to chew, we got to digest. There's no shortcut. But this is the foundation. If you don't even learn, if you never learned Tanya in your life, never learned Hasidus, then you, 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 don't even, you don't even know where to start. You don't even have the tools, the information. Without the information, you can't even start. You don't even know that, that you don't know. <laughs> you don't even know that there is something to know. <laughs> You're totally in the dark. Clueless, hopelessly lost in the dark. Here, at least, okay, this is eye-opening. Okay, now I know that there's a whole world, a whole universe, a whole depth, a whole... So now we want to learn about it and review it and understand it. And it takes a lot of thought.
a lot of concentration, and then thinking it over, just thinking, focusing, concentrating, thinking of it, and that can give you a whole energy, a whole could energize you, could give you a whole enthusiasm, and that can change your life. When you have to explain it to someone else, it helps you tremendously. So all the years you've been studying Tanya, you should start on the Upper West Side, you should start giving a class in Tanya. And you'll, you'll, you could do wonders. Yeah, but the difference with you is inside, and with me it's mentally. You'll, you'll be surprised. All your learning, and your experience, and your wisdom, and your neshama. And when you have to explain it, you have to really you have to really understand it better yourself and you really have to struggle a little harder to really do I really understand this because if you don't understand it well enough you can't really explain it so when you have to give it over to someone else that's why the Rebbe made every chassid should really be a communicator the Rebbe wanted every chassid to be a communicator whatever you know communicate it to someone else because you're doing yourself the biggest favor because when you have to communicate it to someone else you really have to understand it very well. So you have to think about it and you have to chew it over and you really have to get it. And in a way, you're internalizing it because you're really thinking about it and spending time and really digesting it. And It has to be crystal clear to you. You can't communicate it unless it's crystal clear to yourself. So you thought you understood until the person asked you a question and they said, oh my, I thought I understood and I don't understand anything because I can't explain it. <laughs> so we're benefiting you. Are you kidding? You're doing me the biggest favor? <laughs> Thank you. You're, 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 you're my teachers. <laughs> this class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.